0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Delaney Hall, filling in for Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound.
1: To begin with, air impulses are caught by the outer shell and directed into the air
2: canal.
0: ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sounds, sound bites, and audible bits and pieces we find all over the world. We eavesdrop on the airwaves and the internet, gather up the most intriguing stuff that we hear, and spin it all together for you each week on Resound.
1: There in the center, we see a small disc, which is the drum membrane. Sound waves beat against this membrane as drumsticks beat upon a kettle drum or tympanum.
0: Raymond Murray Schaefer, a Canadian composer and acoustic ecologist, once noted that while eyes have lids, ears do not. In fact, he invented a word, ear lids, to describe this anatomical feature that doesn't exist. It seems like a simple observation, but the absence of earlids has interesting consequences. You can shut your eyes to avoid looking at something you don't want to see. But no matter how hard you try, you can't really shut your ears. I think this idea gets to the heart of what makes sound so powerful. We're vulnerable to it. It has a way of sneaking in, unobstructed.
1: It is indeed rightly called the most remarkable mechanical system in the human body.
0: So today on ReSound, keep your ear lids open. Two stories that get powerfully close to the subjects they examine. Adrienne Nicola Blanc is an author and immersion journalist, which means that she often spends months and months getting to know the people that she writes about. She collects details and tries to understand the rhythm of their lives. So when her father was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, it may have been natural, even instinctual, for her to record him in his final months of life. She wanted to capture their conversations and the sound of his voice on tape so that she'd have something vivid and tangible left when he was gone. The recordings she made are candid, loving, and raw with grief. And once her father passed away, Adrian worked with producer Sarah Kramer to shape those recordings into a document of their last weeks together. Here's The Ground We Lived On.
3: Showtime. Showtime. Showtime.
4: I love your voice.
3: Can you understand it? Yeah. How come you hear it?
4: Say something.
3: How are you this evening?
4: Can you hear yourself? Absolutely. Adrian Leon LeBlanc, my dad and my namesake. His keen joy in observing people in the world is the reason I became a journalist.
3: I'm laying here while the reporter is establishing contact with the patient.
4: My father was born on June 28, 1917. He was a traveler, a knight of the open road, as he called it, hopping trains during the Depression, shipping off to Italy during World War II, and for most of my childhood, canvassing factories as a union organizer. Cancer was a journey that blindsided him.
3: I'm not sure what trip we're on.
4: So what trip are we on?
3: I don't know. We're on a trip of exploration into the feelings of a... I don't know what you'd call me. I'm in my 80s, and it's an exploration of my physical condition which is very serious, about which we have no definitive answer, and I think only time will resolve it.
4: My father's propped up in a hospital bed in the living room of the house he built with his own hands. He's tucked in beneath a comforter. His body's so slight, he barely makes a lump under the down.
3: I wonder what the hell I weigh. I'd say
4: you're pretty skinny.
3: Yeah, I would say 100 pounds, maybe. Yeah.
4: Now, what was your average weight?
3: My average weight was around
4: 160, 160, 163. Yeah. You want to close your eyes a little? A little, yeah. But I won't
3: go anywhere. I'll stay right, right here, okay?
4: Okay. Let me take your glasses. <laughs> I love you very much.
3: I love you very much. And just
4: bang the spoon if you need me.
3: I sure will. Hi, sweetie.
4: Morning, Mom. Morning, Dave. Morning, hon. My mom, Eve, and my dad have been married for 50 years. He made her coffee every morning until he was too weak to stand.
3: I love you. I love you have you good sleep, huh? I did. Why don't you make yourself a coffee or something?
5: I will, quite a morning. Yeah. It's
4: February. My father's been bedridden in the living room for a month now. It's always been his favorite place in the house. Before he got sick, he'd sit here in his armchair every day. He liked to read the newspaper or stare out the picture window. He'd wave us over to share whatever he was seeing. Blue jays, squirrels, the color of the maple leaves. Now his hospital bed is positioned where his armchair once sat. It looked a little squished up to me. I moved around Do you want to try to get your butt up a little? Are you okay?
3: This is good.
4: My father is the center of our attention. My mom puts all her energy into his creature comforts ironing his sheets and pajamas, finding food that he can eat, and the spaces between they visit.
3: I was looking at all those pictures last night and Mm. I thought our children had a pretty nice
4: childhood.
3: Yeah, yeah, you you, had a lot of happy times. We did have a lot of happy times.
4: We had busy
3: times. Yeah.
4: The house feels a lot like it did in my childhood, though now it's my father. We're feeding, bathing, tucking in. But he's still my dad in every way he can be. He agrees to do leg exercises he knows are useless, because I can't accept that I'll never walk again. Then ready? One, One, two. two. Good, and let it down. I'll do one more. Yeah? Okay. One. One, And bend it up. Okay. Great, great. One of my dad's few remaining pleasures is having his hair washed.
3: Don't be afraid to use your famous scrub.
4: We rig a makeshift drain and use buckets of water to shampoo it in his bed.
3: Is the water running into the buckets or whatever yeah, it is? it's running
4: where it's supposed to. It's
3: Good. Oh. Okay. What is that
4: noise? The water... <laughs> <laughs> That's the water <laughs> draining, draining of, yeah. safely away from your bed. No. Close your eyes, Daddy. This one's going to spill in your eyes a little bit. There. What I'm going to do, Daddy, now is I just want to put your shirt on so you don't get a chill. Okay. I need to be near my father constantly. There are moments that caring for him feels spiritual. He's wasting away, but I experience an almost religious reverence at the sight of his flesh. For the first time ever, I want to have a child. A desire that I'm sure comes from wanting, literally, to hold on to the life in him.
3: Here we go again, talking. And I'm recorded, I think, I hope I am, by my daughter. Oh, I get my teeth out and everything and talk about miscombulated or whatever the guy's name
4: was. Discombobulated.
3: Discombobulated, how's that? Can you
4: spell it? That's what you'd make me do as a child. D I S. My father delighted in language. His only rule with us as kids was if we didn't know the meaning of a word, we had to look it up. I
3: wonder what it is when I I'm so intrigued with words. Oh, well. You
4: always love words. My dad taught me that language was a powerful tool. He wished he'd gone to college because he felt it would have made him a better communicator and able to do more good in the world. He was a gentle man, but he could be fierce whenever he saw anyone mistreated. Certain things always stirred his anger. Shopping malls open on Sundays when laborers needed rest. The memory of his mother, who was a tailor, sewing at their kitchen table late into the night. Workers were his people, and he devoted his life to making their lives better. I hope I hope when I'm an old woman, if I'm lucky enough to get to be an old woman, yeah, I hope I will have brought joy to people's lives like you did.
3: Oh, you already have.
4: But I mean like you also fought for people, Daddy.
3: I was one of many. I know.
4: You're the one I love the most.
3: I'm the one that you knew the most,
4: yeah? You're the one I knew the most, and you're the one I love the most.
3: You love the most and knew the most.
4: Yeah, love the most first. Yeah. (laughs) You're so funny. You're so funny. Sweet dreams. I love you. love you too. Signing off. Any chance I got, I spoke about my father. My pending loss gave rise to new friendships as some of the older ones gave way. Grief scares people, and my pain was so raw I think it was difficult for some of my friends to tolerate. I connected best to others who were wounded, many of them strangers. Serious loss brings you into one of the world's silent fraternities. Have
3: I been sleeping?
4: You've been sleeping about eight hours. You woke up a few times. It's March now. My father's sleeping more. He needs more morphine. My mother's attempts to get him to eat subside. The house feels heavy. We slowed down. Is your mother sleeping? She is dead to the world. She was very sad today. I think she's going to miss you. Yeah. must be scary, I would think, all those years you get so used to being with someone.
3: Or calling somebody for something, or sharing.
4: Cuddling with someone. Sure. It's becoming harder to record, but my father encourages me. Our voices are the ground we've lived on, so we keep talking, even about his leaving me. Daddy, is your, um, your chest hurting when I'm hugging you? No, no. It feels so sad. Mm-hmm. I feel like so many changes mm-hmm. are happening. Yeah, they're just changing, and I can't change it from changing.
3: Some things you can't change. It.
4: I'm gonna be fine, though. You know that. Yeah, I'm very, very strong.
3: I know you are, honey.
4: I just feel like you're my um, you're like my soulmate. You know.
3: mm-hmm. we just love each other.
4: Some comfort I am. <laughs> Clinging to a sick man in a hospital bed, crying on his skinny chest. <laughs> oh, we're <silly>. we're <laughs> silly. And you're recording it all besides. <laughs> Illness transforms the things you most fear into the things you crave and would hold on to if you could. Like my father moving to the living room. No one in my family wanted to replace his armchair with the hospital bed, and now no one wants the hospital bed to go. You could go to sleep. I'll watch you go to sleep. No. I'm just going
3: to close my eyes. Can you do that.
4: Go ahead. I'm mm-hmm. just going to sit with you quietly.
3: Mm-hmm. You don't have to be quiet.
4: A week passes. He has only the strength to speak in whispers. I absorb every word. Have you been open my leg? You want to move your legs? Yeah, I've been open. my legs. You've always been moving your legs, Daddy. You've, you've walked a lot of miles. Oh. You walked miles, remember? You hopped trains. What? Oh, from when you were a young man. You want to see your legs? Yeah. OK. They're very skinny. Yeah. Look, can you see them? OK. My teeth. Your teeth are in the bathroom. Your legs are attached to your hobbledy hips. Where are you? Front room. That's right. You're kind. It's easy to be kind to you.
3: You're gentle. Gentle. Gentle looking.
4: You look so beautiful, Daddy. You're gentle. In his last days, I sit for hours on the rug by his bed and listen to him breathe. My mother sits on a chair by his side, and we try to do what for me will never be complete. We say goodbye to my dad. Daddy. It's Adrian Nicole.
3: It's a pretty name, Adrian Nicole, isn't it? And I insisted it be spelled the way your name is spelled A D R I A N. Because I loved you. Are you in pain?
4: Daddy, it's getting the sun is setting and the trees look so beautiful in the backyard. The little red house that you helped build me. That I used to play in. Yep. I love you. I
3: love you. I'll take a kiss. Mm. Mm-hmm.
4: You're such a good man, Daddy. Such a good man. You can let go. And did you work? All done. My father, Adrian Leon the blank, died in his living room on March 21st, 2003.
0: That was The Ground We Lived On by Sarah Kramer with writer and narrator Adrian Nicole LeBlanc and executive producer David Isay. The story won the 2007 Third Coast Festival Radio Impact Award. Adrian has actually thought a lot about the difficult decision to record her father. To read some of her thoughts, visit thirdcoastfestival.org and click on Resound. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Delaney Hall, filling in for Gwen Maxi. Now we've got a story that eavesdrops on some conversations that are normally kept private. An exchange between a therapist and a patient, for example. And a frank discussion between a woman and a man in a hotel room. Like most things you're not supposed to hear, these conversations will probably make you squirm a little bit, but I bet they'll also make you think, a lot. Here's Madam Butterfly Effect by Masako Fukui.
6: You see them walking down the street, the youthful Asian woman and the corpulent white bloke and perhaps you cringe, or even whisper to yourself, may I order bride? They're everywhere these days, the interracial couple, but we still feel ambivalent about them, don't we? Is it our anxiety about the sexualised images of oriental women that come to mind? Or is it some form of post-colonial white guilt that we assume she must be a victim. Don't you ever wonder about the white man?
7: To some men, the most beautiful sight in this world is a sleeping Asian woman. The sight of her long black hair floating beside her like dark lilies makes them want to die and be transported to a paradise. It is filled with sleeping Asian women who never wake but sleep on for all time, dreaming beautiful dreams.
8: It's not just Japanese girls like yourself. Uh, it's Chinese girls, it's Filipino girls, it's Malaysian girls, it's Indonesian girls, it's Thai girls, it's... It's Singapore girls, it's hunkies, as they call them, Hong Kong girls. It's everybody, and they're beautiful, little precious princesses that you've got to look after. <laughs> and I always thought, I'm going to get myself an Asian woman. What Asian? Japanese? Chinese, I don't care. It was like, I'm going to explore that opportunity, and I belong, I believe, in the arms of some asian lady
6: that's phil declaring what he calls his special appreciation for asian women men like phil have a certain way of seeing us objectifying us it's called the white male gaze
8: just let me look at you and i'll and i'll go through every every feature and benefit of how beautiful a woman is. Your hair, the long hair, that's very feminine.
6: What is it about the
9: hair?
8: Long hair? Well, it's girly, okay? Ah, uh, look, I love the colour of your skin. I love the shapes of your body. I love, you know, the just the deep brown eyes, you know? It's all very beautiful.
6: When they gaze at us, they inscribe onto our bodies their fantasies of the exotic, over-feminised, submissive Asian woman, turning us into their versions of Madam Butterfly, Madam Butterfly China, Doll, China Doll, Doll, Lotus Blossom, Lotus Blossom, Blossom Rice Bunny, Rice Bunny,
5: Rice Bunny Suzy Wong, Mariko and Shogun.
7: She is the queen of her own sleep. She is dreaming a luxurious dream in which a warm autumn rain is falling. She wants to feel the rain touching her. She deliciously wants to get slightly wet.
10: Yeah, I've actually predicted that that would arrive just at about the time you arrived. Do you, have you seen the weather radar? No. Oh, let me show you. Just, this is Sydney where the cursor is, see? Yeah. yeah. That's that yellow rain. Is getting like
6: Phil, amateur weatherman Jerry orange also has an appreciation right. for Asian women.
10: They've got great skin. And, well, I suppose it's smooth, doesn't age too much, and hairless skin.
6: His fascination starts with the skin, but is more than skin deep. It penetrates the smooth, hairless surface. What about a lot of men, say... They're quite petite.
10: Certainly petite, being petite is another thing.
6: But why do you like petite? Because you're a big man.
10: Maybe I'm frightened of women my size. (laughs) No, I just like that sort of compactness. And that sort of contributes to the uh, impression that they're younger.
6: So do you prefer younger women? Yes. How much younger? How old are you, Gerry?
10: 66.
6: So now that you're 66, you don't particularly want to spend time with a 25-year-old, for instance.
10: Oh, I don't mind. (laughs) (laughs) I think women prefer younger men, too. I I don't don't prefer younger men. You like older men? Yes. Oh, good. Can we have lunch? (laughs) (laughs) I suppose there's a sort of uh, feeling that Asian women are sort of uh, innocent and childlike therefore they, they need protection type of thing. But did you see the movie The World of Susie Wong? No, I didn't. Well, I saw it not long after I was there and I cried because I didn't like to see that uh, happening to those people. But, I mean, some of the Asian women are real dragons. They're really <laughs> nasty pieces of work. Even a female Asian dragon looks innocent. She's got that on her side. So, you're going to trust her? So, we're back into, now we're back into white rain. <laughs> what I call white rain on the radar, yeah. you see. You're, you're, how long have you been in Australia?
6: I've been in Australia for nearly 30 years now. Really? Well,
10: one thing, you don't look old enough to be here nearly 30 years. <laughs> Thank and, you. and the other thing is that your English is fantastic. You're, yes. you're,
6: The woman referred to as Dragon Lady is the last Empress of China, who died in 1908. A sympathetic and serene woman, she was affectionately called Old Buddha by members of her court, yet she became known as Dragon Lady in the West, thanks to distorted accounts of her which reviled her as manipulative and merciless. Such accounts included a story that she had an abnormally large clitoris, which she was in the habit of rubbing on the anus of her sexual partner.
1: <laughs>
9: <laughs>
10: I had um, relationships with um, quite a few Asian women, mostly Chinese, and some Japanese. Um, I think there's a sort of a discipline about Japanese thinking. Because of this sort of discipline, Japanese people are really neat. Neat thinking, neat householders, and the way they dress. You rarely see a Japanese woman who's not neatly dressed neatly. I mean, you're probably one of the slackest dressed Japanese women (laughs) I've ever seen. sexual relationships, I think the Japanese are definitely the best. They're enthusiastic, uninhibited and passionate. Really strikingly so, uh, no other nationality that I've had a sexual relationship with comes anywhere near the Japanese.
6: Jerry's views on Asian women make me uncomfortable. He idealises us as innocent, neat, yet in the same breath he can ogle us as sex fiends. It's a bit like putting us on a pedestal so he can look up our dresses, metaphorically speaking. I know I shouldn't take it personally, but I can't help being unsettled by these stereotypes of Asian women. Like all stereotypes, they're potentially dehumanising. And yet, I have to confess, I'm strangely drawn to men with an Asian fetish. I'm intrigued and repulsed at the same time. Their fantasies make my skin crawl, yet I find myself playing along, sometimes even flirting with them. The images of the submissive, demure Asian woman are disturbing, but just because I reject their stereotypes, I don't want them to think that I'm not Asian enough, either. Actually, I'm not rejecting all their stereotypes. I agree that a lot of women look youthful, are gentle and neatly dressed, for example, even though I'm not. Is that why this Asian thing has a hold on me? Because I feel so ambivalent? Where do these myths of the Oriental woman come from, anyway? I know a feminist cultural studies scholar who might be able to shed light on this. Her name is Ian Ang, and it helps that she's also an Asian woman. Whenever you say Asian woman, white man, people just go, oh.
5: (laughs) What would you define that problem to be from a cultural studies perspective? the whole idea of Asian women and Western white men is cast in a, in an Orientalist framework in which um, it's always very clear that it is a very strong power relationship there, that the Asian women are poor, not very well educated. I do think that the Western perspective on Asia and Asians is so much based on a sense of, well, superiority on the Western side. And Asia was always feminized, uh, seen as the weaker partner, seen as in need of protection. And there is also this idea that Asia is exotic, it's strange, it's mysterious, it's beautiful, but inscrutable, that hasn't really disappeared yet, unfortunately. And I do think that, uh, for example, film and literature has contributed very strongly to the perpetuation of that stereotype.
11: We live in a different world,
6: come from different races. Oh,
3: honey, I want to be my wife.
5: But what would happen to our children what would they
3: be? What would they be?
10: They'd be half Japanese, half American. They'd be half yellow and half white. They'd be half you, they'd be half me. That, 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 that's all they gonna be.
6: I love the film Sayonara, in which a very young and rather delicious Marlon Brando falls in love with a Japanese dancer. And even though it's full-on oriental fantasy, it can seem so romantic on film. And I too have fantasised being kissed by the luscious white boy lips of the Marlon Brando character. Sayonara
1: Japanese goodbye Whisper sayonara
6: Let's analyze the film for a minute. It's set in post-World War II Japan, and the love between the dancer, who is liberated from her life of servitude by the dashing Western man, has a familiar ring to it. Remember Miss Saigon? Madame Butterfly? The quiet American? They're all stories of Western colonization, penetration, involvement in the East, made palatable, even virtuous by the fairy tale plot. White Knight Rescues Yellow Damsel. But in real life, the fairy tale can be a quite different narrative, like White Knight Abuses Yellow Damsel.
5: Filipino women being uh, abused at home by their husbands and things like that. There seems to be always a reluctance, really, to embrace these women's cases as important the thing with, with the West's relationship with people like that I think is, is quite ambivalent. On the one hand, these women need protection, but on the other hand, they are also not really worth looking after because they are so different, they are not part of our culture. I think that there is a bit of that, I think. From the white? Yeah, from the white point of view. And I think there is, there is always a sense of, uh, of indifference, I think towards some of these women. Even a lot of liberal white people uh, may feel uncomfortable because of the cultural difference um, that they treat Asians as Asians rather than as human beings. Mm.
6: I wonder how these issues are negotiated between couples in long-term relationships. Are all relationships between Western men and Asian women based on Orientalist myths? I'm curious to know what my friend Eva thinks. She runs an introduction agency, matchmaking Asian women with Western men, so you could say this is her area of expertise.
11: It's nice Lovely see to see you again for so, so long. Yes. <laughs> come in, please. Thank you. Can I
6: get your coffee, tea, something? My tea will be nice. So tell me a little bit more about the men that come here, especially the men that are looking for yeah. Asian women. Like, Why
11: are they looking for women of an Asian
6: background, especially if they're white?
11: The character about Asian women is they still preserve a lot of traditional value about female and that's what a lot of Caucasian men like about because they are the the combination of traditional and modern women and they they look after family. You know, they don't mind doing housework. They don't mind it. They think uh, I'm a woman, I'm good at it, I have talent at it, like a cooking for instance. When a man look at a woman, this is what they expect. They expect a woman like a woman but by saying that they also expect men to do something for them for instance uh, they they would think men should take a lot of heavy duty job in a house if a man to you know mow the lawn and uh, refuse to vacuum clean and they get upset this is your job so it's just a division of the you know job according to the talents
6: When you say it makes you act more like a man or more Mm. masculine, what do you mean by that?
8: Chivalry. I think about what I can do, whether it just be little gentle gestures of opening a door for somebody. I find their femininity beautiful in this world where... It's been lost to a certain degree, especially with Western women.
6: Why do you say that? Like, why can't you do these chivalrous acts with women who aren't Asian?
8: I certainly can. It's just that I was in a relationship my last marriage with a beautiful Australian lady. And by doing all these acts, I actually lost my own identity and became like a doormat for this person.
6: So you're not attracted to Western women anymore?
8: Not at all, not at all. Um, Elle McPherson, sure she's gorgeous, I just don't think that we would get anywhere more than to become friends. Elle Macpherson's this amazing businesswoman who's in control of her life and he, who's certainly not going to, to play, I, I wouldn't feel, a, a feminine role in any relationship, but then I haven't really spent a lot of time with her.
6: (laughs) So it's the fact that she's perhaps successful and that she might be in control of her life, is that what...?
8: Look, that's probably it, and I'm not saying that there aren't a lot of successful Asian women out there, so it's not that at all. From an aesthetic perspective, yeah, sure, I just find Asian women much more beautiful.
0: You're listening to Madam Butterfly Effect by Masako Fukui on ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio. What do you think about the story so far? Are you squirming yet? Let us know. Email us at reSound at thirdcoastfestival.org.
2: Australian women are a bit rough around the ages. So are Australian men, for that matter. So, you know, I'm not trying to be in a glass house and throwing stones. But, you know, I mean, Australian women tend to be rather dowdy in their, in their way they dress, I think. So is
6: it just the way they dress? You're talking about... No, no, and about... very
2: loud and very aggressive and...
6: What do you mean by aggressive, though?
2: There's a term that's been coined in Britain, ladet. And I think, to a, to an extent, it's the same in Australia, in that and women. Go around
6: you, saying, Oi. Well, yeah,
2: to, to to an extent, and can go out to the pub and you know, get pissed, and that's fine as well. And I've got some good friends who are like that, <laughs> but I have a preference um, that I am attracted to you know, East Asian women why that preference has developed over time, I think because I've had very positive experiences.
6: That's John, and like Phil, John isn't into Aussie women. But this white male belief that Asian women are more feminine has nothing to do with us. It's about them, isn't it? It's not about femininity, it's about their masculinity. (laughs)
9: It happened seven years ago, when I was a sophomore in college and still overwhelmed with gratitude for what a toss of the head, a shake of black hair, could do to the male students who hovered around me. I bet you know 101 ways, don't you, he said, putting down his drink. 101 ways of what, I asked. 101 ways to love a man, he said. That's what you Japanese women, or is it Chinese, are supposed to know. Says who? I don't know. Maybe it's some geisha thing. He was tall and well-built, athletic as well as smart, and cousin to one of the more famous families of the country. Women sighed and crossed their legs as he walked by. I'd been flattered by his attention. Geisha, I said, correcting him automatically. Whatever, he said, moving his face closer to mine. Anyway, shouldn't you walk on my back or something?
6: Just to set the record straight, geisha are not prostitutes though it's their job to be alluring and entertain men. They get paid to perform the Asian mystique. And the West's seemingly endless fascination with geisha sustains this orientalist myth. Interestingly, geisha have played a big role in my relationships with men. If a man believes I might have the geisha gene, it makes me seem more desirable in his eyes. In fact, my Asianness has been a dominant theme in my past relationships with men, I think. Many white men from my past are now married to Asian women. That's curious, don't you think? And makes me wonder was I just another Asian woman they could project their fantasies onto, or am I the one with the fetish for men with yellow fever? If I'm going to venture into my murky subconscious, I think I need a little guidance from a therapist. So I'm going to see Dr. Tom.
1: You have a lot of anger about those past relationships.
6: Yeah, yeah, I probably do. Yeah,
1: well, what do you make of that?
6: The reason why I'm angry with them is because... because they're the ones that project these fantasies onto me. And... You know, and unless I play that role, they're not interested in me. They're not interested in me as a person.
1: Did that make you angry that when you realised that?
6: Yes, it did. It started to make me think that none of those relationships were real. And I'm beginning to wonder if I could ever have a real
1: relationship
6: with a man.
1: Is it just about the objectification?
6: I think it's also the fact that I played into that as well, Mm -hmm. that perhaps I had a chance to be real, but I thought it was easier for me to be, Mm -hmm. to act like Mm -hmm. so-called Asian woman or whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever that means. Yeah.
1: So just as Western men are trapped by their objectification of the idea of Asian women, you are also trapped by the same thing.
6: Yeah, I think so.
1: What about with Asian men?
6: See, I don't find Asian men attractive. I think it's it's a physical thing. I, they're quite small and, and, you know, sort of not muscular in the way that Western men are. And also my, my relationships, significant relationships with Asian men have been very patriarchal, I guess, for want of a better word. I've, I've had a lot of Japanese bosses who basically bossed me around and treated me like the girl in the office.
1: And how did you respond to that?
6: I think I played along with it. Mainly because it's a role I had to play in the workplace. Mm.
1: So with both Western men and Asian men you play a similar, you're put into a similar role.
6: Mm, I guess so, yeah. Am I the only woman who takes all these oriental stereotypes to heart? How do other Asian women feel? I talked to Jenny, an attractive young woman who is married to a white man. He happened to be looking for an Asian woman on the internet when he clicked on Jenny. You're a younger woman, you have a different experience from me. How do you feel about men who just... Want to date Asian women? Mm. <laughs> do you do you mean you
12: know you think that they're a bit perverted?
6: <laughs> In no well, way. maybe not perverted. I'm mm. I'm not talking about the ones that go to Thailand and sleep with prostitutes mm. or go to bars. I'm not talking about sleazy old men. But I'm talking about people who are you know have always got Asian girlfriends. I don't find that particularly offensive.
12: In my case, I find um, Caucasian or Anybody who's not Asian, it's a natural attraction. Maybe it's something to do with our biology, our body, our instinct to look for something different. I did have a friend who, um, he's, oh, he's Lebanese. He's very tall-built, very strong, masculine. I find him attractive, so it's, um, it's not limited to
6: Caucasian men. Desiring the strong white man reeks of Occidentalism, the flip side to Orientalism. And the problem with that is that just as women might use their Oriental power to attract men, and I dare say I have at times, men use their Occidental power. In fact, some white men presume that their attractiveness quotient is higher with Asian women and that we're somehow easier because of this Occidentalist bias. And I think that partly explains the cringe invoking phenomenon of the big fat white bloke arm in arm with a petite Asian woman. I know I'm resorting to pop psychology, but I've had enough unwanted advances from strange white men in my life to feel I've earned the right to voice my distaste. I'd like to say to these men, how dare you ask me out? What makes you think that I would be interested in you?
1: Okay, so if you put yourself in their shoes, how do you think they would respond to this?
6: I don't know, and I don't really care.
1: I'm not going to give anything to you? Yeah. Because you're interested in me?
6: Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, because you're... It's perverse.
6: It's perverse what? That they're interested in me.
1: And therefore you want to destroy someone.
6: Are you saying I'm perverse? Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> it's perverse because, you know, you, you, you obviously want to um, meet somebody that you can love or feel loved by, yet as soon as this arises, you're automatically rejecting it. I mean, you're presuming that they'll never get beyond the Asian factor. Do you think that's true?
6: In most cases, yeah. Yeah.
1: What you're saying, therefore, is that you will never get past the Asian factor. Isn't it?
6: Mm. Part of me wants to ignore Dr Tom. He's just another white man after all. But if I had to be brutally honest with myself, maybe I'm afraid that he's unearthed the truth. That my preoccupation, maybe even obsession with Asianness, is really a cover for my fear that men won't like me if it weren't for my Asianness. The cultural studies professor Yen Ang seems to be saying the same thing that I'm not about to eradicate the world of Orientalist stereotypes by being obsessed with them. I need to find a way to stop perpetuating them myself, to
5: find a way to get past them. The problem with an ideology such as Orientalism is that it's there. It's more powerful than we are. Culturally speaking, we will constantly be reminded of its power. What we need to do is relate to each other as individuals. As long as we cannot go in that direction, the Orientalist prejudice, the cultural stereotyping will continue. We all live in a world in which we, we have multiple identities. Uh, on the one hand, we cannot escape being Asian. We can't, cannot escape being woman. Uh, But at the same time, we are also so many other things on top of that. And it's those other aspects of our identity that will have to become a major part of the relationship if it's going to work as a complex and uh, egalitarian partnership, I think.
2: The oriental construct has been so predominantly accepted for such a long time that certainly there is this maybe subconscious orientalist streak in most people of my generation i guess hopefully i can look at a woman and see that woman as a person but am i attracted to asian women because of the other i don't know um it is different it is Exotic, if you like.
6: I've been lumping all men who prefer Asian women into one monolithic category, and I've sneered at them in a way. But that's just my prejudice, or perhaps Dr Tom might say defence mechanism, and I do realise now that it's unfair. John, for example, might express an Orientalist bias, but he's a lot more capable than i am of seeing the human complexity in relationships even my relationships
2: you go into a relationship and you 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 hope that the man you're in a relationship with you because he likes you as a person but then you see these men who've gone out with you going on to other relationships with other asian women it makes you doubt Did he really like me or did he like the idea that he was going out with somebody a little bit more exotic?
6: Speaking to someone like you would suggest to me that it is perhaps because I'm a little bit exotic to them.
2: Well, yeah, and I think, you know, it makes you question your self-worth.
6: Don't you think that I should be doing that?
2: I have no idea about your ex boyfriend so I wouldn't presume to talk about their motivations. But just because somebody has a preference for a certain eye colour Or a certain body shape. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. It actually reminds me of a quote from Marilyn Monroe from the movie Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And her fiancé's father has accused her of only being engaged to her son because he's rich. And she comes back as, A woman doesn't go out with a man just because he's rich. In the same way, a man doesn't go out with a woman just because she's pretty. But it helps.
6: (laughs) Human desire is a fascinating thing. Why do some people desire the other, you know, someone opposite or different, while some desire the familiar? We think we might be attracted to a particular characteristic in a person only to find out that it's something else about them that attracted us, as was the case with Caroline. Her husband, who is half French, half English, seemed to be attracted to her Asian looks and Chinese sensibilities, but it was really her brazen Australian-ness that
9: captivated him.
13: The Aussie accent did it for him, which is hilarious. Oh, and then, <laughs> he was attracted to your aussie nose. Yes, oh. I know, I know. So um, three months later we, we were married and that's seven years ago.
6: When you met your husband, yep. did he kind of mean that, oh, you're a banana? You know, like yellow on the outside, white on the inside? Yeah. Do you think that's what he meant?
13: It's interesting you brought the, the banana because he's known as the egg. Yeah, so he's oriental in the core, but quite, you know, western on the outside. Like, when it comes down to fundamentals, he's very oriental. Like, I can see more western than he is. Well, he's by far more fascinated with Chinese culture than I would ever be. Like, he can pronounce Chinese words more accurately than I could ever. I have vocab, but he has pronunciation. Like, he knows pinyin. When you first got married, perhaps there were expectations of you because you're Asian? He wondered where were the hot baths that would be (laughs) run for him and the slippers at the door, and I said, I think you went to the wrong part of Asia. That's Japan. (laughs)
12: I mean, without internet it's... I don't think it's possible for us to meet. We are very lucky that we met, but um, in reality when I see my husband for the first time, I was actually a bit disappointed (laughs) because I thought um, from the webcam he looks so much bigger and taller. The person that you imagine that's in your head is... There's a a very big chance that that person is not the person in reality. I mean, for me, it's really... It took me a long time to adjust that, to accept my husband as he is.
13: Um, I suppose what's really deep in, in my Chinese culture is destiny and affinity. You believe you are destined to be together? Yeah, so romantic. Mind you, there's been fighting and so forth in the meantime. Our marriage is like any other marriage with um, domestic issues and um, through thick and thin. It's we've discovered that we deserve each other. <laughs>
6: of harbouring stereotypical views about people from time to time. But what strikes me about Jenny and Caroline is that they're able to transcend the stereotypes and create relationships with white men that reshape that orientalist paradigm. But it isn't so for Phil, I'm afraid, and that could be why he's still searching for his elusive ideal Asian lady.
8: Well, she was, she was absolutely dropped dead gorgeous and uh, long, beautiful hair and gorgeous coloured skin and a body to die for. Every morning I used to wake up just to watch her get dressed and pinch myself thinking, how did I get here, you know? We were walking through Newtown one day and she turned around and she said to me, do you know, when people look at us walking down the road, they must think you're a millionaire. At that moment, she didn't look that beautiful.
6: How did that make you feel?
8: Inadequate, because I'm not a millionaire at all. It made me feel like I'd chosen somebody for the wrong reasons. It made me feel that maybe I was being used. And in fact, I was.
6: Bit of a surprise to me, but I think I'm a lot like Phil. I've often found myself in inappropriate relationships, but unlike Phil, I've stopped looking for the ideal man. Despite all the anguish of therapy with Dr. Tom, I still can't stop feeling that people see me as just an exotic Oriental, demure, oversexed, girly, submissive, maybe even a dragon lady. And while that stops me from trusting anyone who's attracted to me, I also know that I'm the one who's afraid of seeing myself as something more than an Asian woman. I guess I'm fearful of disorienting myself, fearful that there won't be much left of me if I rid myself of my exotic identity. Someone once said to me, Uh. a Western man said to me, don't cut your hair. (laughs) And I thought, (laughs) it's none of your business what I do Uh. with my hair.
11: But what is this thing with long black hair and men and white men? You know, I I, I talked to one guy and he said uh, women with short hair, normally they are pretty aggressive. (laughs) He said, you look at those politicians and executives, they all have a short hair. So I guess long hair is a sign of, you know, feminine.
7: He went to the bathroom to get a glass of water and he found a long black hair in the sink. When he saw the hair, his heart sank like a rock.
1: Hi, Mark. Hi, what are we doing today?
7: He carefully picked it up and looked at it.
1: I'm going to cut it all off. Fantastic, let's
11: go for it.
7: He looked at the hair very slowly. It was hard to believe the hair was in his hand.
11: So I think we should chop it all off.
6: Yeah, really short. Eight inches. Yeah, yeah. Cut it off.
7: He was so fascinated by the long, single strand of black hair that he did not overflow his mind with fantasies about it, turning it into a hundred varieties of his imagination. Do you
6: think it'll look alright?
8: I think it's going to look very good.
6: I don't want it too butch though.
8: No, 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 no. (laughs) Beautiful.
7: He just sat there staring at it. Japanese hair.
0: Madam Butterfly Effect by Masako Fukui. The story originally aired on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Radio Eye. To sample from some of the various audience responses to the program, which range from curiosity to hilarity to total outrage, visit thirdcoastfestival.org and click on Resound. And here's an interesting detail. I've talked a bit with Masako about the piece, and she told me that the haircut at the end, it isn't real. She staged it for the story, but didn't actually cut off her hair. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Delaney Hall, filling in for Gwen Maxey. The program is curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world, and subscribe to our podcast. The Third Coast Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, and sponsorship from American Airlines, Chicago's Navy Pier, and explorechicago.org, the city of Chicago's official tourism website. The festival is produced in partnership with Chicago Public Radio and the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.